Good morning. Uh, I really do want to thank you for the warm welcome. It's been it's been great. Um, so uh, it's, it's been really kind of you to uh, to extend the hand of fellowship. Um, it was uh, was not the easiest way to get here. Uh, flew into Denver and then over the weekend the roads were like really <laughs> it was a bit of a harrowing trip. So I'm glad I made it safe. Um, and I want to just dive right into the word. So we're going to be looking at Psalm 40 today. Um, I'm going to start by just reading the first five verses, but we'll look at the whole thing. Um, So I'm going to read that for us together and then pray for us. Psalm 40 says this. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. This God's word is given to you in love. I'll pray for us. Lord, we give thanks for just this day to come into your presence and to hear from you. Um, I'm a visitor. I I can't possibly know where everyone is coming from or where their hearts are. But God, you know. And I pray that in your knowledge and in your wisdom and in your grace that you would meet each person where where they are at. We give thanks for your word, which is like a light that shines in the darkness. And I pray that it would be light for us that as we spend time in it, that Jesus would be, um, would be clear and that your gospel would be sweeter. Would you do this for us in Jesus? Amen. So as, as, it, as it has been mentioned, um, it's my pleasure to kind of kick off the Advent series here at Grace Church of the Roaring Fork Valley. I'm glad I got that right. It was... <laughs> it was a bit of a mouthful the first time I tried to say it. Um, but Advent is the season preceding Christmas, and it's a time of waiting and anticipation, expectation for the coming of a Messiah, right? And we, we, we are waiting uh, his second arrival, and we, we look forward to, uh, or we look back on his first arrival as well. And so this Advent series will be uh, spent in the book of Psalms, um, which might be a curious choice at first. But this is what Luke wanted. And so I was like, okay, no, I'm just kidding. Um, (laughs) uh, It's a curious choice, but um, I think it's going to be an interesting discovery, not only of each psalm that we'll be looking at, but also how they are connected and how they lead into not only the Christ of Christmas, but also his second coming, um, which is what Advent's all about. Psalms are really the prayer book of God's people, right? And something interesting about them is that these songs are like our words, like human words, lyrics, and prayers of men to God, right? But it's also God's word to us. So it has this like interesting dual function. It reflects our words and our life and our experience and even our words about God, right? And so, so much of our questions. And yet it's still God's holy scripture to us. And so it's also our answers because Christ is revealed in it. And so what's happening is God has given us psalms so that we might know the right words to say to him. And in doing so, he is speaking to us through them, leading us 
to, to a better understanding of Jesus. And what I like about this psalm is that it's kind of like a microcosm. It's a miniature picture of the Christian life. We wait and worry. We remember. We believe and trust the gospel. We find deliverance. We rejoice and we wait again and ask for God's help again. Now, this is a psalm for Advent. And Advent, as Luke mentioned, literally means arrival. So the Christian life, kind of like all, of, all lives, is often waiting for an arrival. The way my students at WashU would put it is, they are waiting for the day that they can say, I made it, right? I made it. Like if X happened, like I've arrived, right? Then I've made it. If I pass my MCAT, I've made it. If I get, if I get my app, that investor, I made it. And so much of life is touched by this kind of sense of arrival, isn't it? There's a writer um, named Samuel Beckett. He was a playwright and an author. And he once kind of seriously explored this theme of arrival. And he kind of put this in rather startling terms. Um, It's an ominous short story that he wrote titled uh, Waiting for Godot. And he portrays life as kind of haunting and disturbing because it feels like we're not sure what we're supposed to do with our life other than wait for some arrival. Our existence kind of feels like it's imposed upon us, right? And this is kind of all embodied in two of his main characters who are told to wait for a mysterious figure named Godot. They have no idea who he is, what he looks like, why he's coming, or what they're supposed to do with him when he comes. Uh, they only know that they're supposed to wait for Godot, who represents kind of some, like this illusion of salvation, the arrival of some purpose that never actually comes. But they go on with the distraction of waiting for him anyway. And that's how the story ends, just them waiting. Beckett's play was actually voted the most significant English uh, language play of the 20th century. And I think it was voted this and why it reached so many people is because it's the story of this world. It's a story of people waiting for the arrival of a purpose, perhaps even the, the arrival of a redeemer. The psalmist, of course, knows this about us too, right? He knows this all too well himself. In fact, the way he puts it is, I waited patiently. And in fact, the Hebrew is more like, Waiting, I waited. So I waited, waited for the Lord, right? I waited, waited. That's how he opens the psalm. What are you waiting on? Where in your life are you maybe saying, I've waited, waited. This psalm has a movement to it, kind of like a progression, sort of like a, a play in three acts. And it's telling us that ultimately you and I are waiting not so much for a something or some event, but rather a someone. Our arrival is a who. It is the Lord, our help and deliverer. So I just have a very simple kind of big question for us this morning. Have you waited, waited for God? You know what that means? Have you waited, waited for God? And the psalmist gives us kind of three things to think about as we do so, as we wait on God. And so firstly, We get to locate our trust. And we see this in the first five verses. Locate our trust. We see the psalmist start with the big tension of life. There are some things we can't control. 
that very often we feel powerless. And this is the rub of life that we don't like because from the moment that we are born, we are needy and weak. And that is terrifying. Like it doesn't take much for us to feel this way either, right? Like, have you ever really, have you ever been like really good at something like really good, but then all of a sudden you're next to someone who's like pro level at it. <laughs> like we feel our like insecurity at that moment. Like Luke said, like, yeah, like, you know, like my basketball shot. Like, I feel like I, 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 I could dribble a ball like pretty okay. Like I can, I'm pretty comfortable at most gyms across the country. But one time I'm at a gym and there's a former NBA point guard right next to me. And I'm like so self-conscious, right? Like suddenly all confidence is gone. I'm like even worried my, my laces aren't tied the right way, right? Like what does he think of me? We don't want to feel this way. We do what we can to believe that we are not poor. As a, like, to believe that we are not like an, feeling like an orphan in this world. To have some security, stability, or power. Something that can hold us steady. I was really shook over Thanksgiving break because that weekend the, the trailer for the Lion King remake was, was coming out and I was like so excited. And then I realized that this is the first movie that I cried in because Simba lost Mufasa. And I'm not sure I'm ready to see this in high definition, live action animation, right? Like, but like the reason why like we connect with like a movie like that is because we feel like Simbas who've lost Mufasa. Michael Shaben puts it this way. He's a writer and author and he talks about his own fear and weakness. He says, anyone who has ever received a bad review knows how it, la- how it outlasts by decades the memory of a favorable word. My story and, and my stories are all in one way or another the same. Tales of the grand pursuit of connection, of success, and the inevitability of defeat. Success does nothing to diminish the knowledge that failure stalks everything you do. But you always knew that. Nobody gets past the age of 10 without that knowledge. He's talking about the fear of our own weakness. We all know we can't have ultimate control, not even the things that we fiercely protect. We can't even control our health or our reputation. And unless Jesus returns, uh, no matter what, 100 years from now, this planet will be all new people. Like, think about that. In 100 years, all new people. The names of buildings will change. The things we've looked to secure relationally and materially and so forth will change. And even David, a king, this psalmist, knows this all too well. He says he knows what it's like to be in the pit, in the miry bog, in the dark, uncertain, helpless place. And so he waited, waited for the Lord. In my life, I've waited, waited also. I've waited, waited for a job during a season of joblessness. I've waited, waited for children during a season of miscarriages. For broken relationships to heal. For things to turn around in ministry. For the doctor's prognosis. It's hard to wait. And so we know what it means to trust in things other than God. Something more tangible, something that looks impressive or weighty, something out here in creation that I can see. And so for the ancient Near Eastern world, that was in idols. We get this interesting thing. It says, blessed is in verse four, blessed is the man who, who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud. 
I learned that the Hebrew for that, the proud, is actually Rahab, which is an ancient Canaanite sea god. And what he's really saying is, blessed are those who don't turn to the idols, to to those who go astray after the idols' lies, is what verse 4 is saying. Only humans struggle with idols and the lie of an idol. I was reading a book by Andy Crouch, and he says, you know, you should just take a trip to the local zoo and go and whisper to the animals, you can be like God. (laughs) You will get no response back, right? Because only we struggle with this. Now, we may not trust in blocks of wood and stone or sea gods, but we have our own modern idols, things we are impressed by. We might be a little bit more sophisticated, but we still have these things. We just see our arrival in something more relatable to us. For my students, they are impressed by big schools and organizations, by big shots and power brokers, people who can get them access into important places. Maybe a rival for you was landing that job with that salary or marrying that person who you felt like would fulfill your deepest needs and affections. I looked around, uh, took a tour of this place in Aspen and things. It's a beautiful place. So maybe it's the lifestyle of this romantic snow beach that you guys have. (laughs) I don't know. I I was kind of thinking of that George, the Descendants. He did it just a number of years ago. It's a movie that's set in Hawaii, right? And it's this land that's mystifying and just, just breathtaking. And the film opens with Clooney doing this monologue. He's a, he's a main character, and he, rides, he resides in Hawaii with his family. And he, he opens the film with the, these words. My friends on the mainland think, just because I live in Hawaii, I live in paradise. Like a permanent vacation, we're all just out here drinking Mai Tais, shaking our hips, and catching waves. Are they nuts? How can they possibly think our families are less screwed up, our heart attacks and cancers less fatal, our grief less devastating? Heck, I haven't been on a surfboard in 15 years. And that's kind of the thing, right? Our so-called arrivals never finally deliver. For me, it's building a campus ministry that I wanted to look impressive and attractive that would make a big impact for WashU. And even when I feel like I've gotten some, you know, somewhat there, like it, it's, it's been a really blessing ministry in many ways. It still wasn't enough. Because our idols, our arrivals never deliver. You know what idolatry looks like? Um, I have a friend who once kind of suffered a really embarrassing episode. He was eating at a restaurant called Joe's Crab Shack. If you've ever kind of driven by through the country and you've seen this big sign um, outside the restaurant that says, eat at Joe's, like that's the place. And he walked in and he noticed a sign on the wall that read, free crab tomorrow. And so he has like this like moment like, that's great. I'm not going to eat here today. I'm going to save that meal and eat crab tomorrow, right? So he comes back the next day and he says, I like the free crab. And the restaurant workers kind of saw their opportunity. They said, um, look, buddy, look at the sign. It says they're free tomorrow. And my friend is like confused. And he protests that he was there yesterday. But they insisted, hey, I don't know what happened yesterday, but the sign says tomorrow. <laughs> now, my friend hadn't caught on on the running gag, that the sign is always up, promoting free crab, not today, but the next time, right? 
And so to the delight of the workers, he shows up again a third day. (laughs) And he is once again told, the free crab is tomorrow. Finally, my friend wises up, but he's got like egg all over his face now. It's too late. You know, I like, I, I like laughed really hard when this happened, but you and I actually live this out every day. The Bible speaks about our idols as being just like this sign, free crab tomorrow. Keep visiting and revisiting. The promises are coming. You're going to arrive. They'll be realized the next time. Like here's like textbook idolatry, right? You and I are like full of worries. So we approach our idol and it's anything that you love more than God. It's, it's, like a, it's, a, it's a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing and that you place your hopes in and you get really, you know, like terribly protective of, right? Whenever it feels threatened. And an idol seems to promise everything and demand nothing at first. And then you return again and suddenly it's promises a lot but demands a little now. And soon the tables have turned so that it promises nothing, but now demands everything. Because you and I are on the hook, we stay with it. John Rockefeller was once asked after becoming the wealthiest man, how much is enough? And his famous reply was, just a little more. And this is why idolatry is always equated with bondage, being in the pit, and miry bog. Eat at Joe's. There's free crab coming tomorrow. And this isn't easy for us to hear, but David is getting at this very point in this passage. Blessed is the man who trusts not in the proud, not in the idols and their lies, but who trusts in the Lord. He's calling us to remember the times that God has been good. When he set your feet upon solid rock and he drew you up so you could see again and realize his wondrous deeds have been multiplied. The second thing that we can do during this time of waiting, waiting on God is to share our joy. And we see this in verses six through 10. I'm gonna read that really quick. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Then I said, behold, I have come. In the scroll, book, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O oh my God. Your law is is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. We get to share our joy. You see, David moves the psalm from recalling past troubles Right, um, and the way that God has helped, uh, helped us in the past and he moves us into present praise and present obedience. One of the things God's people most often neglect is to share our joy because sometimes we're just so relieved to see our situation improve that we forget. We turn to God in time of need, but it's harder to go back to him when things are well again because we don't feel our neediness like we did when we were in trouble. But the psalmist says we need to praise and obey. God doesn't need our sacrifice. He doesn't need us to prove our devotion or, be, or he doesn't need to be manipulated with sacrifices like the gods of other religions. What he wants is he wants a relationship with us, the creator with his creatures. 
And so when goodness come, we need to, like verse nine says, tell the congregation. We need to tell the glad news. That's what the gospel is. Gospel literally means good news. If it's good, it's got to be shared or else it ain't really gospel. It's kind of like a restaurant I used to eat at in Chicago called Fat Willie's Rib Shack. Okay. It's a great little hole in the wall barbecue shop. But the problem was that, was that they'd often run out of ribs. And when it was sold out, they were done for the day. So one time I was like, you know, I was stopping by there after watching a movie nearby. And I said, hey, like, let me get a full slab. And like a good old Chicagoan does, stern, terse voice says, we out, <laughs> we out. And it dawned on me at that moment that Fat Willie's Rib Shack without ribs is just Fat Willie's Shack, <laughs> right? He's like, we got beans. I'm like, beans ain't holding, you know, like I'm not here for the beans. So a rib shack without ribs is just a shack. And this Psalm is saying that glad news, the gospel without gladness, without sharing is like having good news. That's not really good. It's just news. It's just a shack. God has done so much, but we remember so little. God has done so much, but we share so little. And it's the quickest way to rob the power of the gladness that we've been given. There's something powerful that, that David says that, that God does when, when we delight in him and his work in our lives that we get to share this with others. Something powerful is done. Do you not know how much the other people in this room need to hear of how God has worked in your life? I know this because I see this on the campus all the time. You know, students come, like planted the ministry started with three students, more came because they started to share with their students, with their fellow classmates. And I suspect that the same would happen here too. Just like we're fooled into thinking that sin is purely private, we think that as long as no one else knows, it doesn't affect anyone else, right? But we might be also be fooled the other way too, that our glad news is only for us. And so negatively, if I'm struggling with, with anger or lust, like it keeps me from being a blessing to others, right? It's not purely private. But positively, if I experience God's work in my life, but I don't share it, it's kind of like the same thing. Uh, it keeps me from being a blessing. And that's why some of my most favorite parts of a worship service is the times that we corporately confess sins or recite the creed of faith. And of course, the congregational singing of hymns and songs. Because it is, it's God's people speaking to each other the gospel, sharing the glad news and truth, encouraging each other that none of us are better than each other, that we're not alone, but we walk together in this. So how do you know that good news is good to you? You'll find yourself obeying more and more. Like none of us come to the Bible and, conf and conform to it like all together, like right out the gate, right? Wholesale, right? Like some things probably sounded crazy to us and backwards, even paradoxical. The last shall be first. Blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> yeah, right. Like that might be the right answer, but that's not the real answer. That's not the, that's not the answer that I see in the real world that I live in. This is totally ridiculous. And yet those who have walked with the Lord know something about this. Like when I first came to Jesus, I thought I had three issues. I was like, God, let's, let's knock them out. 
And the longer that I've like walked with God, I realized it's not just three issues. It's 300 issues. It's not 300, it's 3,000. And it's like 3 million now. Like it's going and going, right? The Lord delivers us from so much. And then the law grows deeper and deeper into our heart. And then it leads us into deeper obedience and sharing of this glad news. The third thing that we do is we get to rest in our good news. And we see this in verses 11 through 17. Let me read that for us. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. You see, in the third act, what we see is that we see that life doesn't stay static. Even after all the deliverances from our waiting, even after new obedience and sharing our testimony of God's faithfulness, even after many joys and celebrations, life continues to have its struggles. And that's part of of this life on this side of heaven, right? So the psalmist, David, finds himself encompassed by evils and iniquities, as he says in verse 12, once again. You see, he, like us, is in need of fresh mercies to find grace anew. The mocking chorus has joined in, and they say, aha, aha. You're trusting in God still? What good is that? But God's people has always understood that God's salvation is past, present, and future. See, God has saved us, God will save, uh, will save us, and God is even saving us right now. That's why Christians have uh, often said historically that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. And so instead of going back to the pit, going back to the miry bog, this time he can rest in his good news. Because his good news is not in circumstances which constantly change and shift, where life kind of feels like a big game of Jenga. His good news is not in trusting our idols, which disappoint or can be stolen and fade away. But his gospel is that while he is poor and needy, as it says in verse 17, that God takes thought of him. That God takes thought of him. Another psalm puts it this way. What is man that you, God, are mindful of him? Or the Apostle Paul, when he says, God is the potter, we are merely the clay. And yet he does shape our life, doesn't he? See, God does regard us. He sets his eyes and his heart towards us. Advent is a season where where we get to remember our poverty and our neediness, yet God takes thought of us. Over the next few weeks, as you will certainly go through the festive celebrations, the hustle and bustle of travels, or the traditions of the holidays and family, it can also be a time 
where your, where your struggles and mine can feel even more accentuated, right? Like sometimes the holidays aren't very easy. And it might be a time where we want to ask, where does God get the audacity to tell us to wait on him again, to rest in him, when it, fe- when it all feels so restless? Where does God get the audacity? Well, it's because Jesus himself knew what it meant to wait and trust in the Father and show that there's blessing there. You see, Jesus knew what it meant to be tempted by other saviors. He was tested in the wilderness. Jesus knew what it meant to trust in the Father. He was tested in the garden of Gethsemane. He knew what it meant to be poor and needy. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And then he went on and he became the poorest sinner ever on the cross. And on the cross, the father actually did not take thought of him. It says that the father forsook the son so that we would never know what it meant to be forsaken by the father. Do you not know that God even came as a poor, needy, pooping, crying infant because he takes thought of you and me. I wonder if we just need to recite verse 17 again and again. But the Lord takes thought of me. But the Lord takes thought of me. You're my help and deliverer. Do not delay. And when he comes again in his second advent, it will be the exact time he intended without delay. I'll just leave with one last picture. Um, that I thought was helpful to me, at least. Uh, Yusaku Maezawa has been in the news lately. Um, more recently, he's been in the news because he's apparently going to be Elon Musk's first passenger to the moon. Okay? Uh, he's a young billionaire, and um, the, uh, the reason why he was actually in the news before that was because uh, he was snatching up uh, a lot of the hottest art pieces on the auction block. So a year ago, he bought a $110.5 million Jean-Michel Basquiat painting uh, from 1982 called Untitled. It was the highest uh, painting to ever be sold at auction um, and, uh, at the time. And he described his feelings of how kind of like the bidding went at the auction house. Interestingly, as the bids went past $60 million, he said his confidence actually grew. I don't know about you, but certain muscles in my body would start tightening <laughs> if I knew that $60 million was on the, on the line. Um, but he was not anxious at all. Why? He knew exactly what, he was, uh, what the other bidders knew. He knew exactly what he was getting, something of great value. When he came into possession of the painting, he tweeted this out. He says, today... I am a lucky man. Today, I'm a lucky man. You see, God knew exactly what he was getting when he went and purchased us by his blood, by the blood of his son. Something of great value to him. He takes thought of you and me. I pray that this is good news for you over Advent. Let's pray. Lord, we um, give you praise that you take thought of us. Even when... There are days that we aren't taking thought of you. And sometimes it's the easiest thing for us to lose sight of in the day-to-day bustle is how you care for us. 
I pray that in this Advent season, whatever we are going through, Lord, would you remind us and encourage us that we have a glad news and that we get to rest in this and we get to share it with others. I pray that we would do so. Would you enable us to do this, to do this for your glory in Jesus' name.